Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, notes are being passed around if you want them. And we are in our series in the book of Revelation. We've been doing a... uh, theme-by-theme study of the book of Revelation, which has been fun to be able to focus on one idea at a time. And tonight, uh, we're going to look at a a very specific aspect of the millennial reign of Christ. I'm going to pray first. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name for help to understand the Bible. Would you release your grace tonight on the teaching, on the Word of God, that Bible verses would come alive and make sense I pray in Jesus' name for power on the word uh, as it's given tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Revelation, this is Satan's thousand-year imprisonment. That's a very specific aspect of the millennial reign of Christ, of the millennial kingdom. If you guys don't know that term, millennial kingdom, millennial reign, millennium, Jesus is going to come back to the planet. We know that. But what you might not have known, if you haven't been kind of staring at end times, is that he's going to jumpstart forever with a literal 1,000-year starting point that's called the millennium. Millennium just means thousand. So if you hear that term, it's referring to the the first thousand years of Jesus coming back. What does he do? What does that look like? How does that flow? Now, when he comes back, it's not like after a thousand years he leaves. After a thousand years, it actually gets way better. But for that thousand years, it's totally epic. And so we have only awesome things in our future, including Satan being locked up during that thousand year period of time. And so we're going to read a passage of scripture uh, tonight out of Revelation 20, 1 through 10. And this passage, if you had to get the theme of it, the theme is Satan's 1,000-year imprisonment. But there's a lot of things we can glean from this passage because this passage actually helps us understand it kind of serves as the bookends for the millennium. Because in this just 10 verses, we're able to see before the millennium starts some activity during the millennium And after the millennium's over, it all happens here in 10 verses. I mean, that's a thousand years in 10 verses is pretty good. If you figured out a way to be able to, you know, uh, give a synopsis on a thousand years. And so, again, the focal point here, this is not the only passage about the millennium. The focal point here is that Satan's going to be locked up for a thousand years. And so we're going to look at uh, these details. So, Revelation 20, 1 through 10. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. 
In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down. Uh, let's see. Yeah, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I'm just going to give you a couple of key pieces here, and then we'll break it down further. Um, but just a couple of key pieces. <clears throat> this talks about a period of time where Satan is locked up in prison. Uh, that is not going on right now. Satan is not locked up in prison. Right now he is called the deceiver. He's called the God of this age. He's called the accuser. He is not locked up in prison. He is going to be locked up in prison. When Jesus comes back, strangely enough, after the thousand years, he's going to be let out of prison. I don't know if you knew that detail. We're going to talk a little bit about that, what that means and what happens there. Uh, after he does that, after he's let out of prison, he gets to do a little bit more mischief. And then it says he's thrown into the lake of fire indefinitely, where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? So just the chronology of events here, you've got the start of this says that before the thousand years starts, this angel comes out of heaven and he grabs Satan and he throws him into this, into the abyss and he's there for a thousand years. And then after that, he goes over and he lets him out of the abyss. And now Satan's out wandering around again. Okay. So that's what's we're, that's uh, kind of a little uh, snapshot of what we just read in Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Okay. Binding the great dragon. You know, Jesus spoke about the order of the kingdom, both the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And he described the way that uh, you get stuff done is by binding the strong man. So if you can figure out a way to bind the strong man... You can do whatever you want to, to his house. Well, look what it says here, Mark 3, 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. This is actually a passage where uh, Jesus is talking about Satan and the ways of the kingdom of darkness. He says if the, the kingdom of darkness and Satan specifically is this strong man, and you could say the house at this point is planet earth. And Satan is out doing things, and he's causing problems. And so there's significant um, difficulty, there's significant opposition that we're facing in this age that we are going to continue to face in this age unless that strong man is bound up, literally. Satan bound up, which is exactly what occurs during the millennial reign of Christ. Is Satan is bound for a thousand years. Satan has never been bound before. That's an interesting thought process. It, uh, <clears throat> in fact, what's a Satan when Satan can't be Satan? Like what, like, what is that like? What does that even mean? He's never, he's never known a day in his life that he's been bound. And he has a thousand-year prison sentence in front of him that is coming, and mankind has never known what this is like. It says he's bound with a great chain. I don't know if you saw that. I saw an angel coming down on the top of page two having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. You know, when you're talking about binding a dragon, you had better have yourself a great chain. What kind of chain? What is this made out of? You know, Baskar. It's got to be Baskar. It's made out of something incredible. 
You cannot make a chain strong enough to hold back Satan with just whatever little materials you got laying around. I'm just imagining the craftsmanship from heaven that made this chain. This chain just didn't just appear out of nowhere. They made this chain. And this angel, this mighty angel, he's coming and it's described. John sees it, he says, I saw this angel with all that I can describe as a great chain. This chain has to be effective to actually hold Satan captive for a thousand years. And you just know he's going to be like trying to like wiggle it off and, you know, flex his muscles and bite it and whatever he can do. And it's not going to work. This chain has been forged in such a way that it's actually going to effectively bind him for a thousand years. How big is this thing? That's just really, really intense idea. Another thought that maybe you've, I don't know, maybe you've given thought to before, but it stuck out to me. This angel is operating like a cop. He's operating like an officer of the kingdom of heaven. He's coming and he's seeing Satan and he is coming as an officer, as an agent of heaven, an agent of the government of heaven and with, <clears throat> with the authority that's been given him and also with strength, he's able to bind Satan. I mean, I just don't imagine Satan losing and then being like, okay, go ahead and lock me up. Here's my hand. Like what, who is this angel? that he is even able to bind Satan. And perhaps there's other angels with him. It doesn't say that. But whatever's going on here, I just want you to imagine Satan in a wrestling match, not Satan like with a sad face on, like, okay, put the cuffs on me. I mean, this is, this is a really intense moment here. And this officer of the government of heaven is operating almost like a, like a prison warden. He is coming and he is seizing Satan. He's putting a great chain on him. You can't hold a great chain and put a great chain on a Satan unless you yourself are pretty strong and you got something going on. So this angel is coming to deal with Satan in this way. And it says he's locked and sealed. Now I like that term, locked and sealed. It describes, if you go back and read the passage, uh, Revelation 21 through 10, it describes the abyss being locked and sealed. And the reason I bring that up is for a number of reasons. It means there's no visitors. It's going to be a very lonely experience here. There's not going to be any hope for escape. It's locked and sealed. It is a sealed fate. It's almost like he's thrown in a prison and then the prison is like, I don't know, giant walls are built around it and then everybody just kind of leaves. It's just, it's a lonely prison experience. And it's an interesting thought process, the, the gap between what did Satan's life look like last Tuesday by comparison to what does it look like this Tuesday? I don't know what day of the week it happens, but just go with me here on the one week difference. One week ago, he was in charge of the planet. He was the praise of the earth. One week ago, he is the most known guy on the planet. I mean, that's what it says in Revelation 13, doesn't it? The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. Everybody thought the beast was awesome, but everybody knew where the beast's power came from and they worshipped the dragon. One week ago, the world is worshipping the dragon. 
He is the most important guy to the majority of the human race. It's one week later, and he's thrown in prison, and no one remembers him, nobody sees him. He's bound and sealed and chained. There, that's quite a distance that he has traveled in his experience in the course of a week. <clears throat> he's in prison for a thousand years. One of the things I think is really important is that we increasingly take the Bible to mean what it says. Six times in seven verses, the time frame of 1,000 years, direct quote, 1,000 years is listed six times in seven verses from what we just read. Six times, 1,000 years. It's not a figurative number. It's not, you know, 1,200 years, not a rounding. It's 1,000 years. It says it six times in seven verses. Like, how could we possibly think it means anything else? And yet, for some reason, everything in us wants to try to make it mean something else, and I really have no idea why. Like, it really doesn't make any sense to me how hard some uh, scholars fight to try to make something mean something that's just so overt. It's like it says 1,000 years six times in seven verses. Why are we even talking about this? But there are some that think that it's a figurative number or think a lot of different things. It's a thousand years. And specifically, this thousand years, <coughs> which it's the same thousand years as the thousand year reign of Christ, but the focus in this passage is not so much on the reign of Christ, it's more on the binding of Satan. Which once again, there's another little you know, uh, great comparison there. Christ is ruling for a thousand years. Satan is in prison for a thousand years. He was the most important guy in the world just a week ago. And most of the world wasn't really thinking much about or caring about Jesus. Now the whole world is praising Jesus and nobody remembers that Satan guy anymore. Just really interesting uh, uh, shift of positions there. All right? It's a long time to be in prison. I don't know if you were ever sent to your room as a kid, but five minutes felt like a week. Five whole minutes. The clock ticking down. Will I make it? Will I die of hunger? I have to go to the bathroom suddenly. Everything in you just like wants to wiggle out of it. Five minutes? He's got a thousand years to think about what he's done. A thousand years in time out. That is so intense. I mean, we read this and I just, I think sometimes we forget to put the emotion and the fact and the reality into it. And we're just reading words like it's not a narrative, like it's not really going to impact somebody's life. This is really going to make Satan's day bad. I mean, day one when he's thrown into prison, he's like, he looks at the clock and he's like, I have only got 999 years, 364 days, and 23 hours left. It's like, oh my gosh, that's horrifying. That is horrifying. A thousand years in jail. That is so bad. He's going to miss the whole millennium. I mean, I'm not trying to show sympathy to Satan here. But I just want to get a little bit of perspective. The coolest time in human history up to that point is the millennial reign of Christ. You would just even think from Satan's point of view, kind of like one of the time frames that would be most important to him to be bad. 
like most important to him to get to operate as Satan. Like, I really want to mess up that thousand year reign of Christ thing. And he's locked up and he misses the whole thing. The millennium starts and is over and Satan has been in jail the whole time. I mean, completely misses the birthday party. 1,000 years, he misses the millennial reign of Christ and all of the vile opportunities that he would have loved to have taken during that uh, 1,000 years. He's locked up. He misses the millennium. That is, wow, that's intense. The pain of hopelessness that accompanies that 1,000 years. Like, there is no hope of getting out you just imagine after he's tried to rip the chain out of the wall 7,000 times and it didn't work. You know, after he's fatigued, after he's figured out, he's tried to like yell for help. <laughs> if Satan's yelling for help, you know he's desperate. After he's yelled for help, you know, for solid three days, nobody's come. This is hopeless. This is a hopeless existence. And I promise you he knows the Bible well enough to know how long he's going to be in there. I mean, he knows Revelation 20, 1 through 10, I promise you. And he's like, I'm in here for a thousand years. Can you just imagine how hopeless that would feel? And as hopeless as that feels, with the exception of a short uh, out on bond moment, this is the best it's ever going to be for the guy. Prison, dark, a thousand years in the abyss is happy land by comparison to his next imprisonment. The next time he gets charged with crimes and he gets dealt with through the, the justice system of the kingdom of heaven, the next time that happens, it's the lake of fire forever. So as hopeless as it is, it's the best that it is. That is even more depressing. Really intense. While he's in there, all of his influence is removed. This is the most remarkable thing. He's no longer able to deceive. Humans have never known a day in their life, including the first day in the garden with Adam and Eve. <coughs> Humans have never known a day in existence without the power of the deception of the one who's called the deceiver, Satan. His deceptional power is lifted. His accusational power. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's not accusing. People aren't walking around feeling shame because they're getting condemned and, and shame slimed by the enemy and the accuser all the time. His, his power of shame and, and of uh, accusation is lifted. Pain. The pain that he wants to inflict. All the pain that Satan inflicts, whether it's circumstantial, relational, physical, financial, all the pain that Satan is in charge of causing. That pain is lifted and he's not able to do it for a thousand years. I'm going to use the word influence. For a thousand years, the influence of Satan is removed from the earth and life has never known that before. Human existence has never known a day without all of those components of his influence. And here we've got all of his influence removed. I mean, that's going to be wonderful for the planet. I just, that's going to drive him crazy. I mean, that's just a real 
shot to the pride. All of that that he's used to operating and just suddenly taken away. Well, when the influencer of all those negative things, when his influence is lifted, he's powerless for a thousand years, it's actually going to make saying yes to Jesus a lot easier. Those that are going to be alive in the millennial reign of Christ with natural human bodies, they are going to have an easier time saying yes to the ways of Christ. I mean, an easier time than you and I have right now. They're never going to know a day with that deception and accusation and the shame and the pain and all the influence of darkness. They'll never know a day of that. That whole, you know, Ephesians passage about our fight isn't against flesh and blood. That's the only fight they'll have left. They won't have a fight against the principalities in the air and dark forces and the God of this age and demons. They, They won't have that. It will make it to say yes to Jesus and to agree with his ways will actually be so much easier. I'm just like, what? What would that even be like? That is just cool. His release from prison leads to another war. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of context here. Revelation 20, verse 3, I'm in part uh, 4, page 4. After that, he, Satan, must be set free for a short time. It doesn't help tell us how long a short time is, but I'll give you some details here a little bit later that will help us to understand at least a little bit of what that means. It says he must be set free for a short time. Now, by the end of a thousand years, people have been living long, long lives. It says that they revert back to like it was in the early days. They're living hundreds of years again. Okay? Hundreds of years means lots of opportunities for lots of generations of children. You know, I was on the phone with a guy earlier today. He had eight kids and his friend had nine. And I was like, man, you guys are serious about your babies. But during the millennial reign of Christ, I bet you 80 or 90 kids is probably going to be more the norm for a person in their lifetime because they're going to live for hundreds of years. So, I mean, mom and dad are going to be in their prime for 500 years. That's a lot of babies. Also, the sting of death is significantly decreased because you don't have Satan causing all these accidents and death. So less people are dying. People are living longer, they're making more babies, and they're dying far less frequently. What does that equal after a thousand years of unhindered, go be fruitful and multiply? The earth has never seen the primary context, the, uh, the, the, the pristine context for go be fruitful and multiply. The earth has never seen the pristine context, but will during the millennium. When all of the influence of Satan is backed off, Jesus Christ is in charge of the planet. He's in charge of like rules and laws and government and the food processing systems. And People are going to live forever. They're going to live for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's, it's going to be awesome. And there's going to be a ton more people than there are on the planet right now. A ton more. I don't know how many, but if we're sitting at, you know, 8 billion now, 9 billion, whatever it winds up being in the next few years, whatever, that is going to be nothing by comparison to an unhindered thousand years, multiply, multiply, make babies, make babies, next generation, next generation. People aren't dying. People are living longer. 
I'm telling you, by the end of that thousand years, you could probably do some little stats. You could probably come up with an equation or whatever, and whatever you came up with is probably wrong, but it's better than nothing to look at and kind of come, and I, come with some idea. I can tell you this. The human population is going to be much larger at the end of the thousand years than it is currently right now on the planet. All right? <clears throat> well, Satan gets out of prison, and he picks up right where he left off. <laughs> it's like the guy never took a break. Instead of thinking about what he did wrong and learning his lesson, he came right out of his room in a tantrum. I mean, he's just like in a fit. He picks up right where he left off. He's like, okay, let's get to deceiving. It's like he just pushes the angel out of the way. He's like, okay, I'm going to go out and deceive a bunch of people now. Dude, did you learn nothing? No, I have not learned one thing. In fact, I'm madder. And I'm going to really do it this time. It says... Satan will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. This sounds just like Armageddon. It's like, didn't we just do this? He's like, well, yeah. He's like, you pushed pause on me. I'm pushing play again. I'm picking up right where I left off. I am going to go gather people for battle. In number, the ones that gather for battle. That means the ones that say yes to Satan. In number, they're like the, uh, the sea on the seashore. Like the sea on the seashore. Another translation says like the grains of sand on the seashore. They, they're just, it goes on forever. There's so many of them. I'm imagining it's billions, if not even more, that gather for the battle. Now, that's not the majority of the human race. The majority of the human race is not going to give in to Satan. But if, let's say the population is a trillion. I'm just making up a number. I don't know the number. I have no idea. Let's say the population is a trillion. Or, or 100 billion. If 100 billion are on the earth, and he goes and gets 15 billion, he gets 15%. I don't know. I'm just making up numbers here. That's a ton of people. And he is going to gather a ton, so much so it says that they are like the grains of sand on the seashore. Try to count those. Try to come up with an equation to count the grains of sand. It's just absurd. Now, what's crazy about this is the reason he's so successful, this is a really interesting consequence of Jesus' leadership for a thousand years and Satan being locked up for a thousand years. You've got an entire population that's dim-witted. 100% of the human race has never been tempted by Satan. 100% of the human race. They have never known a day in their life of being tempted by Satan or accused. So they get accused and it's a new experience. What is this? Well, they, they get deceived and all of a sudden it's like they've never known deception. Maybe this is true. Maybe this is real. He is powerful. He says he's important. Maybe we'll go with him. Deception is a new experience. You're talking about the Garden of Eden 2.0 here. The entire human race, given the opportunity to either pass or fail, again, <clears throat> just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And it says that Satan is going to gather enough that it's like the sand on the seashore. Whoa. So intense. He amasses a vast army. <coughs> Again, I'm just saying billions is my guess. And I don't know. Is that three? I don't know the number. These are not, no, I'm not trying to get you on board with the numbers. 
uh, with a system of numbers here. I am trying, however, to stretch your thought processes a little bit to get you probably closer to real than maybe whatever it is we would naturally assume. We're talking about a measurably vast army that's gathered together. And it says that they march across the breadth of the earth and they surround the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, it's Jerusalem. It's the exact same thing as what happened at the battle of Armageddon. They are surrounding the city, the city of Jerusalem, because Satan is literally picking up right where he left off. Now, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but I did give you a, a passage reference here. If you wanted to go and look at the only other time that Gog and Magog is used in the Bible, where, it's, where they're together. The only other time is in Ezekiel chapter 38. It's also in 39, but it's all one prophecy. This is the only other time that the two are listed anywhere in the Bible. And so it's a very clear reference in Revelation chapter 20. It's a very clear reference back to Ezekiel chapter 39. So if you want to do a little bit of homework there and, uh, and go see. Now, I will tell you this, an interesting part about the vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 38 and 39. He's having an end time vision with not near the clarity that John the apostle has when John has the book of Revelation. John the Apostle has got all of the Old Testament prophets and their visions to be able to glean from and lean on and, and draw from. Plus, it's the Holy Spirit's purpose for John in the book of Revelation to have kind of like the revelation of the end of the age. So John's clarity is greater than anybody else's before him. The reason that that's important is often the prophets would have an end time vision that wasn't about chronological order. It wasn't about defining all the nuances and details. A lot of times they would be having a broad vision of the details that would be occurring. The revelation that Ezekiel has here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it actually spans the entire thousand years because at the beginning, and it's not even in order, the beginning of his vision, he's having a vision of Gog and Magog, Revelation 20, where it's after the millennium and Satan is gathering. But right after that in his vision, he has all this intricate, detailed, uh, prophetic understanding about the Antichrist. But the Antichrist comes over a thousand years before this whole Gog and Magog thing. So I'm just giving that to you for you to go study it on your own, but I wanted to give you that heads up. It's spanning the entire end time storyline, including after the millennium when Satan is released. And so that's just a detail you'd want to hang on to. Now, remember it said he's got to be released for a short time. How long is a short time? Is that a day, a week, a month? I don't know, but here are some details that we do know. It's going to take some time to deceive billions of people. They're not all going to jump on board in one minute. It's going to take some time. I don't know how long. I don't know what his, his you know, medians are, gonna, what, what terms he's going to use to social media platform he's going to get the word out in you know, after the millennium. But I do know it's going to take some time to deceive billions of people. Second, it's going to take time to equip billions of people. One of the things that the Ezekiel passage tells us is this army marches to Jerusalem with swords and shields. But all the swords and shields during the millennium had been destroyed because Jesus said no more war. So during the millennium, shields and swords had been beaten into plowshares and had been burned and there aren't any more swords or shields. So Satan actually has to forge swords and shields 
And it says that he marches into battle with them. That's going to take some time. Next, he's got to gather this army. Man, trying to gather our staff to go to dinner took a long time the other night. I can't even imagine trying to gather you know, a few billion people from across the planet to all gather for a fight in Jerusalem. Here's my point with all that. It's going to take some time. I'm just guessing months is the short end. I'm just guessing. I can't base that off of any more than what I've just told you and other ideas like it. But I'm just thinking months is the short end. Maybe it's a year or two. We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says a short time. But you better be thinking more than a day. A short time is definitely going to be longer than a day. All right? Let's keep going. Now, what's unthinkable is we're talking about the millennial kingdom where Jesus is ruling the planet from Jerusalem. But another detail, the city of heaven descends during the millennium to over Jerusalem. And you can see it. You can see it from a long ways off, probably a thousand miles or more. <clears throat> you can see the new Jerusalem, the city of heaven, over Jerusalem, and it's clear that it's heaven, and it's clear that it's connected to Jerusalem, and that Jesus is in charge of both. It is crazy that that is the backdrop for this army gathering. Hey, what are you guys doing today? Well, let's go kill Jesus in Jerusalem. You mean the city with the giant glory box diamond overhead? That's heaven where God's presence is, and it's like got fire and stuff? Yeah, we'll be fine. We'll take it out. And as they march and they get closer, they just keep getting closer to the glory of God, and they're convinced this is a good idea and it's going to work. This is unthinkable. It's like, it's not enough that you grew up in the millennium under Jesus' leadership, but you thought you could take out the glory box city? Whoa, this is like deception at another level. They're marching towards Jerusalem that has the new Jerusalem above it as a canopy. And that's where they're approaching. Well, don't worry. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. In just a moment. Notice it says came down from heaven. This time it's not talking about like the sky. It's talking about the glory box. It came down from heaven. God's like, oh yeah, you know, release the rear thrusters. And it's like, fire just comes down and just destroys them all. There, maybe there's 10 billion or something. 10 billion people just got cooked in one minute because God pushed the button on heaven's firefall. That's a lot of fire. Listen, when the fire fell on the altar and started the fire that, that lit the Leviticus 6.13 reality, that was like a narrow fire. When the pillar of fire was going around and they got the pillar of fire and they're following it in the, in the desert, that was a pretty sizable fire, but nothing like this fire. This fire consumes billions of people in a moment. There's no fight and it comes from the city. That is so intense. All right, now I wanna throw out a, a, an idea, a theory. I am not dogmatic about this. If you want to disagree with me, that's fine. I'm going to tell you what I think and why. And then you can choose to do with it whatever you want. But what I'm always looking for is for the Bible to answer problems that the Bible presents. I'm always looking for how do these Bible verses that all say these things that seem like they can't work together, 
How do they work together because God's not confused? So if he wrote this, 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 and this, and those things just can't possibly go together, I'm always about, Lord, what wild way could they possibly go together? Because they don't contradict each other. That's impossible. So how do they work together? I want to present the possibility, I'm just going to call it possibility of the return of Pangea as part of the way that the millennial kingdom operates. For those of you who don't know what Pangea is, it's the idea of the continental drift where all the continents were, at least is the theory, that all the continents were together. And if you look at the, the globe, you can see it. You're like, yeah, actually, I mean, if those things, if they were drifting, I can see how they were all together at one point in kind of a big mass glob, whatever, you know, Im very imperfect rectangle, you know, with lots of things and whatevers. Now, whether that was really there or not, I don't know. What I do know is there are some details about the end times that we look at, and even here in this passage, we'll start with, uh, with Revelation 20, <clears throat> there are some details that need to be answered, and this is a solution to how they could be answered, and I'll just say this, I've been thinking about this for over 10 years, and in my experience, this idea has gotten stronger, not weaker, as I've studied the scripture. So that doesn't mean it's true, but I'm always looking for my theories to either get popped or get stronger as I understand more uh, scripture and specifically related to eschatology. So just, you can do with that whatever you want. First little tip off, at least in this passage, they marched, this is after the thousand years, it says they marched, that means walked, across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city of, that he loves. They marched across the breadth of the earth. Now, if what it really meant was they came from everywhere, that could have easily been written. It, they came from everywhere. But that's not what it says. It says they marched across the breadth. Now, that means the, the distance, like you could call it the width, that like from one end to the other. They were marching on dirt, or they figured out how to march on water. It says they marched across the breadth of the earth in order to come and attack the city of Jerusalem. So there's a thought there. Well, an uninterrupted marching path could be accounted for if the continents were connected again, or if they ever were. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have a dog in the hunt about whether Pangea was a real thing or not in the past, okay? But whether it was or not, I think it really well might be in the future. And if there's no interruption, if everything has been gathered together, well, then you actually could literally walk across the breadth of the earth because there's no, like, water problems and, and that kind of thing. You just walk, all right? I want to throw into you Revelation 16, 18 through 20. It's the final uh, bowl of wrath. There came light, uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. Multiple ways of saying big earthquake, unusual earthquake. This earthquake was even different than other big earthquakes. There have been other giant earthquakes. This one's different. This earthquake was doing something different to the planet than other earthquakes do to the planet. And don't forget, it was tremendous. Well, what happened? Part of this earthquake caused every 
island fled away and the mountains could not be found. It's interesting that it doesn't say the islands got submerged. It says the islands fled. Now, again, I'm just saying, what's an island? How, how, how big or how small does a piece of dirt have to be to be an island? Does Australia count? And, and, if, and if Australia doesn't count, does New Zealand? And so what's an island? <clears throat> and it says they fled. If I can use a different word, they moved. Every island moved. Another passage in Revelation says the islands were removed from their place. It actually uses that terminology, removed from their place. They were moving, islands moving. Well, what if what's actually occurring here is these islands and everything else are all coming together? Is that what's being said in that passage? I don't know, but the idea kind of goes along with my uh, premise here. Unprecedented earthquake. I just want to talk now about the practical benefits of Pangea of Jesus governing the planet during the thousand year reign if the, if the planet was all together, if all the dirt was one big piece of dirt. Let me just give you some of the practical things. Isaiah 2 tells us that people from all across the earth are gonna go to Jerusalem to learn from Jesus. Just a practical point, it's a lot easier to get there. One, if you don't have water to travel across. Two, if you don't have the extra distance that that water creates. See, if you've got all the land masses together in this thought process, presumably you only have water on the other side of the planet. There's less distance to travel. So presumably, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know if it's real or not, but they're all going to come to Jerusalem and learn. They're all going to bring their most valuable resources to Jerusalem. It says that the kings of the earth are going to bring their most valuable riches to New Jerusalem uh, via Jerusalem to bring tribute to Jesus. Also, Isaiah 14.2 talks about bringing all the Jews back to Jerusalem. Now, none of these things mean that there must be a Pangea. None of that means that. I'm just throwing this idea out there. But I will tell you it'd be a huge aid to global travel. And one of the reasons that that's going to be important, especially on the front end, is after the exodus of everybody dying in the plagues, all those armies killed at the Battle of Armageddon, the rapture has occurred and all the saints are no longer on the earth and having physical bodies anymore. There is a very, very, very low human population. It's depleted to some really small number. What if it's a few million people? You're talking about 8 billion down to 3 million? Made up number. It's, I don't know what number it is. I'm just trying to give you an idea. But if you've got 3 million people scattered across the planet, they're all over the place. And one of the primary focuses of the millennial kingdom under Jesus' leadership is the nations are working together to rebuild Israel. The nations are working together to go get Jews and bring them to Jerusalem. The nations are working together to create infrastructure. The nations are working together. It's a lot easier to get them to work together if their travel capacities, distance, connection, they're only on one continent, that kind of an idea. All of that just makes it a little bit easier. Again, none of that means that there's got to be a Pangea. I'm not, I don't think there's a single verse that says it. I don't think so. But there's a lot of things that we have uh, in our future that the Bible doesn't explicitly say that may still well be real. Well, let's just keep going. We'll wrap up here. Then it says, Revelation 20, verse 8, he goes out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather, gather them for battle. 
In this passage, if it really were that Pangea was a reality again, you would have some semblance of four corners. That doesn't mean that it's real. But you've got a bunch of, I mean, these are just some ideas to chew on. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Don't believe this and don't dismiss this. Read your Bibles and see if the Bible actually helps you to either prove or disprove this idea. And if it strengthens it or weakens it. All right. Uh, oh, and then also the coastlands. I, that's another one. Ezekiel 39 verse 6. Remember in the Ezekiel passage, that's the equivalent. Okay. It says it this way. I will send fire on Magog and those that live in safety in the coastlands and they will know that I am the Lord. Again, I will send fire. That's the fire down from heaven. Okay. But then it specifically says, and those who live in safety in the coastlands, just another way to just again, throwing this out there. If you do have one continent, you have a primary component of the earth. It's coastland. It's the exterior. It's the people that are coming from the four corners plus. So is any of that real? I don't know. But I thought I'd introduce the idea to you to chew on a little bit. None of the uh, discussion is really about that, but you can take a little sidestep if you want. Let's break up now into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Uh, four groups of six to seven. Four groups of six to seven. And who are my group leaders tonight? All right, so uh, Luke Fredenberg, can I get you over here? Andy, you'll be in the back. Luke, you're there. And then Christy, just kind of this way a little bit. Okay, so groups of six to seven, break up, have some conversation, then we'll come yep. back and we'll do a uh, Where are the demons during the, the Millennial end. Kingdom? So uh, I don't know that I can think of, I'm not going to say there aren't any, but I can't think of any verses that address it directly. What we can see is that when Jesus was operating in the low level of authority that he chose to operate in at his first coming, demons submitted to him and he was able to be very obviously in charge of the demonic realm in any of his proximity. What we also know is that the millennial kingdom is being reigned and ruled by Christ. And it often it will even refer to it as the kingdom of righteousness has come. And so Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning in righteousness. So what's the case of, uh, you know, where are the demons? I don't know directly. I can't say that I'm confident that they're going to be locked up as well. What I can say is that I'm confident that whatever role they have in this present age is going to be dramatically reduced. What makes the most sense to me, though it is a reading between the lines and it doesn't say it. So I just want to make that clear. What I'm about to say, does, it's not written, okay, is that their fate is similar to Satan's. And that while Satan is locked up for all the reasons that he's being locked up for, that they then would also be dealt with in some sort of imprisonment. I don't know of a verse that says that. What we do know is all of the wicked men are dealt with. We also know that Satan is dealt with. The, the Antichrist and the false prophet are dealt with. It seems like a, an oversight on the kingdom of righteousness's part to have not done something about the demons. So to me, it makes the most sense, though I can't point to a Bible verse that says, that, uh, that says it, it makes the most sense to me that the demons are in some way dealt with in lake of fire, thrown in the abyss, some other kinds of dungeon, some version of not allowed to continue to operate like they've been operating. So great question. That's intuitive. It's great. All right, over here. 
Oh, good. Good. Well, that's a good question you almost had. Oh, so, uh, no, a uh, great question. So the question is, in, uh, under the, the, the rules of the millennium, with Satan locked up as the tempter, is temptation completely removed from the human experience? The answer is no, and here's how we know that. The justice system is at play during the millennium, and repeatedly, there are, when I say repeatedly, I can think of three or four verses, and if I can think of three or four, there's probably 10 or 12 or more that say some version of, and those who sin, will, they will be met with speedy justice. That those that you know, uh, do not follow the decrees will be met with speedy justice. These kinds of things under Jesus' leadership. Now, what that means is somebody has to do something wrong. So if they did something wrong, why did they do that? They did that because somewhere, I mean, Paul describes the iniquity of, of lawlessness that rests within us, whether some outside force is tempting us or our own evil thoughts, carnal desires, uh, there will absolutely be temptation and there will be sin during the millennial reign of Christ. That sin, however, will be dealt with much more uh, swiftly. And I'll I just say, Jesus, when he's in charge, he will be so merciful and so not letting anybody get, rid get by with anything. It will be both in the most beautiful, you know, love and justice sort of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, penal code. Um, but there absolutely will be temptation. It just won't be at the level and of the order, but it will still be the own flesh, the own you know, weakness of the human frame, um, those things. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, what's that verse says, don't let the one who's being tempted say that the devil is tempting me when your own evil desires are actually dragging you off. You know, some version, yeah, I, I, I botched the verse, but you guys know the gist of what I was trying to communicate. Talking about our own evil desires, we didn't even need a Satan to cause me to do that one. My own evil desires caused me to do that one. So that will still be a, a, a point of uh, reality for those that don't have resurrected bodies that are on the earth uh, during the millennium. Great question. Andy. So uh, the Gog and Magog reference in Revelation chapter 20, uh, do I think that's describing two uh, portions of geography? The answer that I would give is I'm going to say no. And the reason, I, what I think is being described in that is like almost like the underlying remnant of wickedness within mankind. Because what's described in the uh, uh, Ezekiel passage, when it says Gog and Magog, it's describing all of the enemy nations of Israel that are going to be gathered against Israel. And, and part of it, it's a dual fulfillment in the Ezekiel passage, because part of it's describing the battle at the end of the age under Antichrist leadership. And part of it is describing the second rebellion that occurs after the millennium when Satan goes out to deceive the nations and they're gathered like the sands on the sea. So when you're looking at those two things, the only other reference to uh, Gog, or is it Magog? The only other reference to Magog is the Table of Nations uh, back in uh, Genesis 10, and then it's also quoted uh, in Chronicles somewhere, but it's just a quote from the Table of Nations. It's the only other time that Gog is mentioned. <coughs> and he's one of the sons, I think, of Japheth. Uh, and, but when you, when you now touch on this Gog and Magog and those two terms used together are only found two times, one in uh, Ezekiel 39, uh, 38, and then one in uh, Revelation 20. The picture of it is less about geography and more about like this subset of humanity that is uh, gathering against 
God's purposes and against God's plan. And so there, it's mysterious. It is a mysterious phrase that I would challenge anybody that said they understand it perfectly. I don't know that there's enough Bible on it to understand it perfectly. Uh, it's a pretty, at least at my current understanding, it's, it is a pretty mysterious phrase um, that... I'm certain we can get some more clarity on as we read and study, but the way that it, it reads to me, the, my understanding of what it refers to is Gog is a point of geography. I'm sorry, Magog is a point of geography. Gog is a son of Japheth. And it's describing in both of these passages the gathering of a large number of people from a, a large number of nations in both cases. Uh, either the four corners of the earth described in Revelation 20, or from the list of nations that is listed out specifically in uh, Ezekiel 38, and it's a, it's a, an entire area, and it's even it, some of those territories are very far apart from one another. It's almost like a, uh, like a, um, I don't know, hidden keyword or something like a, like some sort of uh, in, in phrase to be interpreted as like a a broader span of wickedness. Uh, that's going to come against the people of God. One more point. When you're looking at the reality of Babylon at the end of the age and the wickedness of it, it's described as people coming, you know, people from all across the earth that are uh, entrenched in the wickedness. But when you look at the judgments that are described in the book of Revelation, sometimes it describes those judgments as being against the Antichrist and his kingdom. Sometimes it describes those judgments as being released against Babylon. But in both cases, it's the same group of people. It's the wicked of the earth. And so I think that's kind of the sense of what's happening with this Gog and Magog is it's describing the wicked of the earth that are coming against the purposes of God. So I know a lot of words there. Uh, hopefully that was a little bit helpful. Okay, uh, over here. Yeah, that's good. All right, so the question is, uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, uh, there was a, a lot of dead that were left out because they were killed through a variety of ways. The sword of the Lord, they turned on each other, hailstones. There were a lot of things that killed all the guys in that final battle. And it, it, we went through the details of it. It took a long time to clean up the mess. So the question is, now we've got you know, maybe a, a million times as many guys or something. I, who knows the number? Some huge number more. Uh, is there going to be a recall on the birds? You know, are we going to have the birds come back for a round two? Or, or what's the description? I'm going to just say it this way. That it's, uh, the, in my opinion, the jury's out. Because, not necessarily about the birds, but, uh, but about the bodies. Because the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you read the details... That's the passage we were reading that was the equivalent passage about the burying the bones in, uh, in our last session about the, the, uh, the birds flying overhead. So an argument could be made that it's a dual fulfillment prophecy and that the subject of the burying of the bones could apply to both the uh, before the millennium army and then also the after the millennium army. I don't think that's what's happening. I think the fire consumes it all. And I think that what occurs in the fire falling from heaven is it, it just straight up cleans it up and it's done. And it's like, I, and the reason I think that is because the way that the battle goes round one is so dramatic and layered and like give Satan a chance, wink, wink. 
Let him think he's got an opportunity. The way the battle goes at the end is let him do whatever he wants, gather as many guys as he wants. He can get a billion times more guys. It's fine. And then fire falls from heaven and they're consumed. And it's just, it's like over. It's just final. And so whereas pre-millennium, it's the drama, it's the storyline, it's the bride and the harlot. It's this whole story. After it's like, let's move on. Let's, let's go ahead and enter into the next age under leadership of Christ. And I just, it doesn't seem to me that it would follow the same natural human prog- uh, progress dynamics of, hey, there's a bone, pick it up, bury it, that kind of thing. But someone else might argue, well, but it's from the same passage, uh, the Ezekiel 38, 39. So I, I just want to throw that out there. Excellent question. Guys, these questions, it's obvious that you're understanding the story. Because these are like 301 questions. These are not, this isn't even 201 stuff. Uh, so I'm just proud of you for tracking and hanging in there and learning. And, and I'll just tell you this, anybody that might find themselves a little bit new around here or at any point new, if you just track with this for a while, the details, they make sense. Like, I love the people in this room, but none of them are particularly scholarly. They've just been hanging around and they got it. Uh, because the story makes sense because the Bible is meant to be understood. And so I just want to encourage you, if you'll just hang in there, the details will make sense in time. Okay, well, Father, we just thank This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.